Hey, this is Dave Pryor. Welcome to Leading Agile Sound Notes. Today, we're going to talk all about personas and how to understand who the people are that we're actually trying to help. So Scott Sellhorse is a senior VP and an executive consultant at Leading Agile, and he was with me in my PO class a few weeks ago, and I learned a ton from him. So I asked Scott if he could take some time out of his day, and we're going to talk a little bit about how he approaches understanding the user, and also we're going to talk about an article that he posted recently on that same topic. So Scott, thank you for taking time out of your day. Thanks, Dave. It's my pleasure. It's, uh, it's great to be here. So you are, you've got a, a title that's similar to many other folks at Leading Agile, but your background is different and your focus of your work is different. Can you talk a little bit about kind of how you came into this, the Agile space and what, what you bring to this that's unique to this conversation? Uh, sure. So I, I got, re I was really fortunate. I got into uh, the world of Agile in 2000. Uh, Kent Beck came and spoke at our company right as XP was just starting to get off the ground. And we had a CEO who was really driving a transformation for us. And so I, I was really fortunate because at the time I was uh, still doing software development and consulting work, uh, writing code myself. And I was somebody who was not doing automated testing, not doing things in increments, not doing iterative and incremental delivery and, uh, you know, doing the big bang stuff, not having starting to have a good understanding of my users and right, fold in all of the stuff that's really sort of become core tenets of the agile practice. And so I was, I was fortunate enough to, to be in it and do the transformation in a way that I could really internalize it and feel what makes agile better fundamentally. Um, uh, and then the other thing that was fortunate for me was I was old enough to not get overly dogmatic about it and sort of have a <laughs> pragmatic approach. Right. I was, I was so you're able to drink the Kool-Aid and filter some of it out. Yeah. Yeah. Like I was, I was able to see the value. I, I, my background was actually, uh, in mechanical engineering and I did that for almost a decade before I got into software. And okay. so, um, uh, so my perspective was a little different than a lot of the software uh, developers that I worked with. Like I, I did lean when it was just lean, right? I did six Sigma, right? I, I had some of that, uh, foundational stuff in my background from outside of the pro software space. So it was okay. really fascinating to see that fold into, you know, how, how it's been morphed through what the Pop and Dykes done have done, um, Pop and DX have done in adapting some of that stuff into the agile space. Yeah. And, uh, okay. but yeah, so, so I had that background and then did, uh, and then moved into product management and been doing that, uh, for uh, many years, 15 years or so. Okay. So, so if you're listening, one of the things that I found really interesting about having Scott in class is I would can I would characterize you if I had to put you in like a in a, a box. You're one of those very uh, user UX kind of solution focused people. Like you're you're worried about the fit that we're going to have for who the customer actually is and digging deep into the customer and understanding their problem. Is that instead of just throwing software at them? Is that a fair thing to say? Uh, yeah, and and if and if you'll. Uh... If you'll humor me, I think there's there's a reason for understanding why that's sort of been so important for me. So so yeah. I came into the software space and the product management space from an engineering background. I was a mechanical engineer, and then I was an AI programmer and a consultant software developer. And so it was very, very easy for me to bias towards being inside out. Look at this cool, yeah. shiny thing that I built. And, this and will I, solve everyone's problems, exactly. even if they don't have them. Exactly. Yep. Build it, and they will come. Uh, yeah, all, all of that... Uh, sort of thinking. And, and so I learned that I really needed to bias against those, my own sort of instincts and switch to an outside in focus. Um, so starting with that orienting, 
uh, I've been in, in Austin, Texas for the, for the last 20 years. And Austin's kind of an interesting space where, you, when, you know, when people talk about Silicon Valley and they think about startups and stuff, that's really, uh, they over-index towards sort of B2C uh, market dynamics there, right? And a ton yeah. of focus on UCD and A-B testing and consumer engagement. And in Austin, there's this interesting niche where we sort of have a, have a critical mass of thinking about B2B2C. So it's understanding okay. these difficult enterprise problems that are not just OEM vendor type relationships, but rather there's there's something in the DNA in our community here in the startup scene in Austin around combining that enterprise uh, maturity uh, of large engagement value proposition focused programs and products with sensitivity to the impact on customers. And it, and it manifests in a super powerful way, which is if I'm working with a client, uh, I'm not just talking to the client about the problems they need to solve. I'm talking to the client about the problems they need to solve for their customers. And okay. so that outside in, from my point of view, um, perspective gets pushed one level down the stack. It's almost like the Matryoshka, right? those uh, nesting Russian dolls yes. where – my clients, the thing that's going to be best for them is for them to be outside in about their customers. And so it's almost like two layers deep where this market-driven focus, uh, ultimately it is consumers. And, and so um, putting things into a customer-driven framing in yeah. order to help my clients have or our clients have that customer orientation in how they go about doing stuff it causes uh, you have to do a little bit of extra sort of mental gymnastics when you know as part of leading agile when we're engaged but yeah. the people we're working with it's the more straightforward how do i think customer first as okay. as a focusing lens for driving market first investments in your products okay and toward that end, I want to share that in the class, one of the things that was really fun for me was, I mean, Scott was taking the class because he wanted to finally get the certification, but he knew everything I was teaching way better than I did. And so I got schooled in a couple of places in the class in a really great way. And one of them was when we talked about personas. So my typical approach in class is I'm just trying in a, in a product in a class to get people to be open to the idea of creating personas. So it's a fairly high level kind of let's you know just try to think about who the customer is and and think you know what are they what problems do they have how are we trying to help them. Um, but Scott has an approach that is goes much deeper than that and is much more rooted in actually understanding details about the customer. The persona that I talk about you described as the proto persona, right? Uh, yes. So can you, can we just start out there and you can, you can explain what a proto persona is? Uh, sure. So I'll, let me drop in a couple pieces of framing for the people who understand this stuff even better than, than both of us, uh, <laughs> so that they don't get annoyed with what I'm about to say. Yeah. So they can forward a couple seconds to the, to the good stuff. Right. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> there's, there's a couple things to think about. Persona, persona is a heavily overloaded term. Um, it's just like love, right? You can love a flag, you can love hot dogs, you can love your spouse, Right. It's it's a it's a term that gets overused. And okay. so it, I start out with the framing of two big buckets. I have buyer personas and user personas. Okay. And in the when I'm working on or with or thinking about user personas, it's about understanding their problems. And with buyer personas, it's about understanding the buyer's perception of the end user's problems. Right. There's an interesting market 
uh, interaction dynamic there. Sometimes your user is your buyer, right? If you're selling somebody a computer, if you're selling one person one computer in the consumer market, your buyer and your user are probably the same person or often your same person. If you're selling somebody a tricycle, your buyer is very rarely the user. And so there are two different personas and we're not at all talking about buyers. So I wanted to sort of frame them okay. out. Okay. So we're talking about the people who actually are going to be the ones touching the thing that we're building. Right. And, okay. and that insight, uh, the next layer of framing is that I think about sort of three different types of personas within that user, uh, user buyer persona world. And I, okay. and I think about uh, marketing personas, design personas, and product management personas. And some of this is, is my own bias coming at it from a product management point of view, uh, having a, a lot of exposure to the design side of things uh, in my yeah. in my history. Okay. Um, from a marketing point of view, what I think about as personas is that there's there's a goal. So mar- marketing and product management have different and design have different goals that all rely on uh, overlapping aspects of understanding of the users. So it's like a three circle Venn diagram. We all okay. need to know a lot of the same things. And we each need to know some additional different things that the other groups don't care about. And in a marketing uh, for a marketing persona is sort of optimized to help somebody know what message is going to resonate for that buyer persona and okay. to know where to put that message. Right. So a lot of the demographic type information, I have a 37 year old um, hockey. Yeah, mom. like the example I gave in class about the lady in the supermarket. Right. Um, okay. It's that's super important for knowing for to help guide your framing of what kind of messaging and positioning is going to be effective in the market. Okay. That doesn't help as much with understanding which problems are important for that persona to solve, which is where product management lines up very heavily and, okay. and design starts to. And then the other one is how to go about solving it correctly for that user. So uh, I'll get into sort of empathy uh, and cognitive empathy uh, as we unpack this. Yeah. So, so in this framing, um, as a product person, what I, what I really want to know is which, which problems are important for, uh, the customer to solve. What does the customer care about? And that's part of my strategy of what's important for my business. Uh, and we can unpack that. There's, there's some complex complexity there too, that, uh, we can talk through if if I start talking in circles. Well, I, can I can I pause and ask you yeah. one question here, real quick? So one of the things that I'm thinking about when you're talking about this is there's there might be actual humans who represent the personas that we're talking about, and they might have very real problems. But in the same way that our customers often think they need a solution that doesn't actually solve the problem they actually have because they don't see it. Are you talking about understanding the customer or the persona at a level where we're seeing their problems better than they're seeing? Like it, maybe it's not the thing that they think is the issue, but it is the actual cause of the issue. Or is it just whatever's on top of their head? Like I want this thing fixed. Uh, it's much more the former than the latter, uh, which, okay. which ends up being really important in, in a couple different ways. One of them is, uh, sounds a little bit obnoxious and arrogant, but it's, recognizing that people who are trying to solve the problems uh, are experts in their problem space, but that they're not necessarily yeah. experts in the solution space. And yep. uh, everybody, we all, by human nature, are sort of problem solvers to varying degrees. And we recognize and deeply understand our problems. And then we invent the best solution in our heads 
based on whatever it is we happen to understand. Which is everything looks like a nail because I have a hammer. Right, right. And if if I ha- if I have a problem and I'm in in some sort of shopping scenario, uh, but I'm not a software person, whatever software solutions I invent in my head, they're probably not the best ones. Yeah. And okay. so so yeah, uh, so it gets into that. And so with, within that focus, um, there's, there's sort of an ideal end state where you want to have on an ongoing basis a deep understanding of all of your users and all of the contexts in which they're interacting with your product where yep. they are using your product to help them solve their own problems. Right? That's, okay. that's the framing. Uh, I think I might have made the comment in class that the problem exists whether or not our product does. So whatever, yeah. whatever persona definition we come up with, it needs to be sort of tool agnostic. It's a description of something that's going on in the market. Okay. So, so the personas that I'm talking about making up in class where it's like, just think about who this person is. That's a little bit more on the marketing persona side. I think, I don't, I don't think that we dig so deeply into that problem aspect of it into understanding that in class, but what is a what is the difference between a proto persona and an actual persona? Yeah, so that was one of the things you touched on in your article, right? Yeah, so so you're doing a good job of of bringing me back on track, and I apologize. It's <laughs> it's a tortured path. Uh, you know, we're climbing a mountain, and there's a lot of switchbacks. So <laughs> there's lots of squirrels running around. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, yeah, I have that problem too. Um, yeah, so these personas, and I, I assume we can work on the baseline of people that a, a persona is an artifact that we use to represent a homogenous group of people. And the way yeah. I talk about it is these are this is a group of people who not only share the same problems but value the solutions to those problems similarly. Okay. Every everybody has a transportation problem. Some people uh, a, let's say somebody, a healthcare professional, a doctor who, who's trying to work a shift at the hospital, they have greater urgency about getting to work than someone who is a barista in a coffee shop. Sure. Right? Or, you know, maybe there's whatever, whatever the scenario is, it, it isn't enough to just say, well, we both need to get to work, right? We care about getting to work to different degrees or getting to work on time to different, sure. degrees, whatever. Uh, so within that persona framing and, Ideally, we should apologize to all the baristas really briefly because your your job is very important. You have to caffeinate the world and the doctors. Ah, so yeah, just... okay, fair, fair <laughs> enough. Uh, and probably being on time is even more important. With with the, yes, yeah, you're, you're Sorry. right. It was. I used to be a barista. I have a soft spot for that. <laughs> it was a specious example on my part, and I apologize to you all. Um, so ideally, you you have a ongoing deep understanding of your uh, of your customers and your users. Yeah. And as it, and this is another squirrel or a switchback, but it, as a product manager, being agile, there's there's two aspects. One of them is how do I do my job as part of an agile process that my company is using, and the other part is how do I be agile in doing my job, and. The, the analogy I use, and it's, and I will type back, I promise, is that <laughs> when you think about uh, a software team building a product incrementally and iteratively, there is this product that exists, and with every sprint, it gets better. Uh, from a product management point of view, part of your product or one of your products is this sort of established understanding about your market and your strategy. And okay. Over time, with every sprint, you get a little bit smarter about your market. And so you update your understanding and you share it with 
folks and the rest of your team. Yeah. So in that steady state world, like you, you think about building a new product, you might you might be putting releases out very quickly, but you're not really getting to the whole product that you envisioned for quite a while if you're doing something significant. And this is okay. this is similar for ongoing uh, building a business. It, you, you're going to develop over time a deep understanding of all your users, but you don't have that entire understanding on day one. And right. if if you're listening to this podcast and hoping to you know, it, you may already know more than what we're talking about here, in which case you've probably got those deep understandings. But there are some pragmatic aspects of getting there, either because you're starting uh, entry into a new market and you've got to go do the research straight up. You're trying to develop a product that is leveraging these insights in parallel with developing the insights. Okay. Sort of a classic orchestration problem as part of a transformation or an agile program. And so there is the maximum value and the maximum effort, maximum time and maximum cost comes from a fully developed persona. Okay. It's almost never the right thing to do to say, we are not going to design or build product until we have that deep understanding of all the possible customers so that well, we that would be the same as doing all the big upfront planning. It is taking it is, all the time. You can just start building something and test it. Absolutely. It is big upfront yeah. requirements, big upfront design, right? So, so you want to roll that back and say, how do I do something less? And we apply the agile tenant of how do I do something? How do I do things at the last responsible moment, which is sort of the middle step that you're probably taking me towards. But the step before that middle step, is let me at least sort of assay the space. Let me let me do a survey and understand who who all the possible users are. And this is where yeah. proto personas come in. So a proto persona, you can use the exact same template as a persona, but there's a very key distinction, and it's and it's important to call out the distinction because it's so easy to do the wrong thing and call it a persona. And the distinction is whether or not your persona is built on research or current research. Okay. A proto persona, even if you use the exact same template you use for your personas, is capturing the information you think you already have in-house. What right. you already know from your sales guys. Uh, let's say you're, you're working on an existing product and you can pull your team together and say, well, I had this conversation. I got this feedback last month. Uh, while I was at a trade show or I sat in, uh, I did a ride along with one of the guys in the support room in the call center. Sure. And that, that sort of baseline understanding of without focused research, what do I think I already know? Capturing that information is a very lightweight exercise. Like you might spend an hour, uh, filling out the form for the, for the persona. And that's what a proto persona is. So if we talk about personas, one of the things that I have happen in class, like, you know, maybe like half the students have done them before or they use them, but they haven't created them. The other half are like, why should I waste time on this? Um, what is, how do you make the case to somebody who's not familiar with this to say, this is why we need to have personas? Uh, sure. So there's, uh, there's two main reasons why we need to have personas. Uh, one is so that the teams who are building stuff understand for whom they're building it so that what they build is more likely to deliver the value we hypothesized it would deliver. So that's, that's the one that's sort of most approachable for the people building the personas, the people doing work based on the personas. Okay. There's All also right. value in the executive suite 
for having it be a conversation that helps drive focus and prioritization that says we will go after one part of the market before another and another part we'll never go after. So, so to me, that's that's one of the key things is figuring out who you're not going to focus on trying to help because maybe they matter, but they don't matter enough. Um, but I, the idea, and, and I guess maybe this extends into many areas, like with prioritization, one of the reasons I like to do something like that is more data driven is because I'm scared of executives who are going with assumptions that they've made or with team members who are making assumptions. Um, but when we start out with personas, isn't that how most people kind of get going with it in the first place? Uh, yeah, it, it, you know, it's it sort of, I think it, I've seen it vary across clients. Uh, sometimes okay. it's exactly that. Uh, sometimes it's, it's uh, large scale investments are driven primarily as competitive responses, as an example, where okay. then we unpack personas as part of clarifying a response as opposed to a driver of strategy. Okay. Um, one of the needs- But if I've got like a startup, I mean, I'm just guessing, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, until, until you are engaged, you are guessing or, uh, yeah, or potentially you are leveraging understanding from some adjacent product or reverse engineering a competitor's products customers. Okay. Um, so right, there's, there's ways to sort of be methodical about it, but yeah, you start out with guessing. Okay. And, and there's value just in guessing. Cause it's better than not guessing. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's exactly right. Like, um, you know, if we think about iterative and incremental, uh, as agilists, uh, there's, there's a diagram that shows up in almost every introduction where you talk about not delivering only the wheels and then the wheels plus the engine and then eventually the car where people are unhappy until they get the car. Yeah. Uh, you deliver a skateboard and then a bicycle and then a car. Right. And the skateboard provides value. It's better than walking. Uh, the bicycle provides more value and the car provides more value still. But the key thing is you have happy people all the way along the way because you are providing value all the way along the way. Um, with personas, we have the same sort of thing. There's, uh, and, it's, and it's handy to talk about skateboard, bicycle, and car because we have proto-persona, an empathy map, and a persona. Okay. Uh, the proto-persona looks just like a persona, except it's based on what we already know or old research or guesses or hypotheses. Okay. It's, it's pulling together a hypothesis in the shape of a persona. All right. Uh, it's, this is what we think we understand about people, and that's better than not doing it, and we can talk about how. Uh, then the next stage, if I get to my bicycle, is around building an empathy map. Uh, an empathy map is – Recognizing that people are not they, – they don't exist to just use our products, right? They exist. They have real problems and real things going on in their worlds. One of those problems, we are hoping they might use our product to help them solve. Okay. And so an empathy map uh, captures – Which I'll, I'll make sure there's a picture of an empathy map awesome. in, the, in the show notes for people to see. Awesome. Uh, an empathy map – provides a picture and this was developed by dave gray by the way i want to make sure to do a shout out and if you were, if you've been using empathy maps for years he just updated his canvas a couple months ago and published an article on medium about it so uh, i think that update was valuable and you should reach out and grab it and refresh your cycles okay uh, so sort of jumping back the empathy map provides me with uh contextualized understanding of my user and so what i mean by that is 
it's it's sort of like zooming in on specifically what they care about as part of solving um, the current the current problem that is in the scope that you're thinking about for your product. So it's not a comprehensive understanding of that person and their goals and their motivations and their skill sets and perspective and the adjacencies that have influenced them. It's not all of the stuff you would get inside a actual full persona. It is narrowed in focus to the context of usage that's relevant to what you're working on right now. So can I, can I pause for a second? Yeah. Cause I want to check in with you on something. So, um, when I, first started to do personas, it was, you know, what do we think we know about this person? And it wasn't so data focused. The first time I saw an empathy map, it completely blew me away. And if you're not familiar with these, it's the big canvas with the face in the middle of it. And you're trying to understand what they need to do, what they're seeing, what they're saying, what they're hearing, um, what they're thinking and feeling. And so there's all these different quadrants on the canvas that you're having these conversations about as a group to just try to strengthen your connection to the customer or the user, sorry, and to understand more about them. So is it is it fair to say that if we start out with this kind of, it's based on bias or assumption or whatever we knew in the past, then we're actually going to sit down and start to unpack that and dig into it a little bit and understand what we think we know. Then we would have stuff we can actually test and, and as we move towards a real persona, gather data that proves or disproves the assumptions we've been making all along the way. Is that yeah, that's that's exactly it, uh, right? Okay. So our, our empathy map is our bicycle. And again, the first version of it is built on what we think we already know. Right. Right. So we pulled together the information from the conversations that our, uh, that our sales engineers have had or uh, insights from our customer support team, uh, whatever we've learned at a recent conference, that, that sort of uh, information that we have. Okay. And... Uh, you know, when you when you think about these kinds of investments, what we're what we've what we've sort of been implying is that understanding our users better helps us make better choices. And so, if we if we unpack that a little bit, it's two kinds of better choices. What are things that are more important to work on, and what are better ways to do what we're doing? So okay. it's it's how to build the right product and how to build the product right. Right. Where so we can help with both of those things. The hypothesis that. Uh, I firmly believe in and I believe has been proven in the market is that by better understanding your user, you will you will make better choices about which problems they care about solving and about how best to solve the problems for that group of users. I think it's important to also just I want to point out that you referred to this a moment ago as an investment. And it absolutely is that. This is not something that like I would never say you have to do this to do Agile because it's not actually part of Agile. But the company is making an investment in understanding more about the customer so they can deliver a more valuable solution for that customer. Exactly. And so the, the, that hypothesis is sort of saying, if you unpack that a little bit, that I have some uncertainty. Yeah. I don't understand enough about my customer to make, bet, to make good choices about which problems they need to solve. Or I don't yeah. understand enough about my customer to make good choices about how best to solve the problems we've picked. Right. And so you invest to reduce that uncertainty. When we're uncertain about your users, you've got risk. Right. You could go build it. You could execute flawlessly, super efficiently. Uh, you can have you can manage your outputs and you go build something with a, a ton of clarity that turns out to be the wrong thing. So 
ultimately. So that's that's really important too because it's not just an investment; it's it's an investment in reducing risk that what you actually ship nobody's going to want or it isn't going to be a good fit for them. That's right. That's right. You're you're de-risking your plan, uh, and if you think about the the executives who are three steps removed from what we're building, uh, for them. Uh, in many cases, how things get built is a black box. Yeah. Right. They they don't think about predictions of did you push the release uh, on September twentieth. Their prediction, what they care about is whether or not whatever you built and whenever you released it helped them meet their numbers for the quarter. Right. That's the framing uh, within which all of the work that we do lives. Right. They're they're focusing on a completely different set of problems. And they are sort of relying on us to go about solving their problems in the right way. So I'm sort of looking at this from the perspective of, I mean, to me, part of this conversation is about trying to entice people into being willing to, to, to take the time to do personas. There's another part where I can see them saying, okay, so it sounds cool. How do I convince management to let me do it? And that, that's why I'm asking the question about investment and risk reduction, because that is a way that you could frame it and say, look, if we don't have this, how do you know? The executive says, well, I just know based on what, like what data do you have? So how do we get to the point where if they can convince management, we need to do this to understand the customer, to make sure there's a good product market fit. We need to do this to make sure we've, we've got a clear picture of what, what the problem is and how we can solve it. How do I get past the assumptions that I'm still making at the empathy map stage, like where, how do I get to the next step? Yeah, no, so that's a great question. And I apologize. Uh, I am almost always having conversations to try and help the executives understand that they need to invest in this and here's how it helps them. Okay. So how do you, let's, let's do that first. How do you, how do you kind of concisely pitch that to an executive? Like in, in a, just a couple of minutes, how do you message that? Uh, yeah. So, so the quick soundbite is, uh, Everything we're doing is about helping the helping the company achieve outcomes. Okay. Right. We're we're going through a transformation. We're helping them move from waterfall to agile. We're adding in particular practices like persona development, all to help them get better at achieving their outcomes, at manifesting their strategy. And there's there's two things you do. You put together a plan and you remove risk and uncertainty from that plan. Investing in personas and understanding your customers and understanding your users removes the risk that you built the wrong thing, and it removes the risk that you built the right thing in the wrong way. That's that's my that's my soundbite pitch. That's my elevator pitch. And then for the uh, some of them get it, and that's all they need. Uh, a lot of times, executive conversation is that short, and it's just a yes or a no. Yeah. Uh, I, I love the way that I actually stopped. I started typing because I wanted to write this down that you said, put together a plan and remove risk and uncertainty from that plan. I think from a mindset standpoint, that is not something that I would have thought of on my own, but just any planning that we do, thinking of it that way is, it's really powerful. Uh, I mean, to me, to, to, to think about, you know, cause I talk about, we, we plan stuff. We don't know what the hell we're doing. We're just guessing. But then as soon as you plan, that's what you start doing is, you know, letting some of that air out. So um, how do we get, if they, if they buy in, if they let us, you know, have the funding we need to create those, the proto personas, and if we can actually get everybody to sit down and start guessing about 
who the customer is, how do we move from just, I mean, can you, first of all, can you just stop with the empathy map? What risk are you at there? Second, how do you move past that into something that's more data-driven? Right. Uh, so you, you absolutely can stop at the empathy map. Um, okay. You know, I've, I've been consulting for 20 years, so uh, I will lose my, my card if I don't say it depends sometime during this podcast. <laughs> and so you asked a great it depends question. Okay. Um, sort of jumping back to your, your previous question a little bit. So you're talking yeah. about how do I convince the executives to fund it? Then the next yeah. question is, how do I convince the teams to want to do it, right? So there's, oh, there's, yeah. there's, okay. there's some layers. So if I think about operations, right? So all, everybody in IT, everybody within the portfolio who is doing the work, how do we convince them? Because they are overloaded, right? There, there yeah. are always more good ideas than we have time to execute on. How do I convince yep. them to allocate part of their time to investing in personas? Uh, because they don't necessarily get graded on whether or not the product in the market works as intended in terms of uh, yielding the yeah. outcomes for the business, right? Okay. It, there's compartmentalization of, of authority and responsibility. There, there are many people who are basically sort of graded on whether or not you met the predictability of your schedule, right? You delivered what you said to sufficient quality bar and acceptance criteria when you said right. you would. Okay. When you don't have a good understanding of your users, you're going to have some missteps in execution, missteps in design, and missteps in prioritization. Okay. All of those can cause you to not accept something as built. Okay. You, you, you have the if, – if I, if I talk about the build the wrong thing thing, uh, part, part of what, Agile, what makes Agile powerful is you're getting smarter along the way as you go. And the difference between Agile and Waterfall is Agile says, okay, now that I'm smarter, how do I make it as easy as possible to update the plan? Yeah. And Waterfall says, whether or not I'm smarter, how do I make it most likely that I will execute against the previously communicated plan? Yes. Right? How do I be as predictable as possible? Right. So uh, in keeping with that tenet of switching to Agile, as we're going along and the teams are building things, let's say we, we get smarter about who our customers are in parallel and we discover when they finished building things. So multiple teams, multiple programs rolling up, delivering an epic or an initiative that we now know that that's not actually the right problem. Yeah. We still are going to accept it because that's a right as part of creating safety. That's the relationships and stuff we've established with our teams. Right. But now we need to go do something else. And so – that becomes waste, getting back to sort of the, the lean, uh, lean manufacturing influence in thinking about agility and the system governance. We can avoid that waste by having the understanding of the users uh, baked in in a way that's more likely to be right. The, the next thing that unpacks inside that is assuming we've picked the right problems or that we aren't in a position to figure out whether or not we picked the right problems. There are multiple different ways to solve it. Uh, in the in the user experience world, there's a sort of double diamond view to developing products that's about uh, diverging and converging. You explore what all the problems you could solve are. You pick one and figure out the uh, of all the different ways that you could solve it, which one you're going to take. And so okay. the better your understanding of your users, 
the greater the likelihood that you're going to pick a solution approach that will be effective. And there's always going to be more than one, and they're going to be effective to varying degrees, right? It's not well, so, white. So, so let's say that we, we think we know what problem we're fixing, and we started to unpack this this customer. We, you know, we, we had the proto-persona. We think we get the problem. We've looked at the empathy map. We're kind of pretty sure we do have a fairly clear understanding of a problem, and the thing that we're planning on building or we are in the process of building looks like it's going to be a fit. One of the things you talk about in, in your article is to get to an actual persona, it's got to be data-driven and how important that is. How do we make that leap from the you know assumptions we're still making at the empathy canvas level onto actual data-driven understanding of who the, who the customer is and what their problem is? Uh, awesome question. Uh, and I didn't go into depth at all in the article on it. Uh, what the empathy map captures is a bunch of hypotheses and assumptions, as you said. And every hypothesis or assumption has uh, the way the way I manage it uh, in general, and you can apply it here in specific, is that you can you can imagine a two-dimensional space. Uh, how important? Uh, how much does it hurt if I'm wrong, versus how confident am I that I'm right? And okay. so some of those hypotheses, you're like, I really have no idea. I'm very uncertain about this. And and if I'm wrong, that's a big deal. Yeah. Right. I can imagine how being wrong would knock the train off the rails. So you want to prioritize that experiments around that to the very beginning. Right. Uh, okay. There are times where there, if you can think about it as a sensitivity analysis for the other uh, ex-engineers in the room. And sometimes being wrong doesn't really make a difference. Right? If you're designing something, if you're designing uh, the grip on a broom, whether or not you're designing it for colorblind users, it's probably not going to mess up your sales of the broom if you're wrong about yeah. that. Right? There, okay. There's stuff that just Or the color matter. of the button on the new Apple Watch with the phone. Right? Yeah. Whether it's red or not doesn't matter because people aren't buying it because of the color of the button. Right. And, you know, the new phone doesn't have a button. And so if yeah. your target persona is the, the people who just don't want buttons, it doesn't matter what color button you put on the watch. You should have picked a, a way to do the watch with no button. Okay. So how do we collect all that data? Like how does the average person – I get somebody in class who's like, well, I'm a, they just made me a product owner and you're telling me I have to create personas. I can't even get a dedicated team. How are they going to do that? Yeah. How are they going to get the information? So um, that's why we sort of take this pragmatic approach of doing the skateboard and then the bicycle and the car. There okay. are some organizations where – and there's so much more uh, – it's more art than science. I hate that phrase, right, because it's all science sort of. Uh, there is – there's a nuance to how deeply you can understand this stuff and how effectively you can execute at it. Uh, okay. conversationally, you're either going to commit to and invest in it because it's important or you're not because there's other stuff that's more important to invest in right now. And that's, that's my, it depends. Uh, it, it's always more valuable to build out the personas. Uh, so I want to, I want to pause here for sure. one second before you explain this part. So what, what the project manager and my brain heard when you said that was that, from a risk standpoint, I may make a choice to not actually develop true personas because 
there's that's an accepted I'm going to take an accepted risk there because maybe I don't have the manpower, I don't have the funding, I don't have the time. I'm going to just kind of drive with one eye closed because that's what I see as the best option for me at this moment. And that's why there's a it depends answer. Exactly. And in in a um I can't believe you're not sitting next to me kind of way. The way I see it all the time is I don't have the bandwidth to develop full personas and I need to use empathy maps because my executive team can't focus and is overloading all of our delivery teams. They're asking us to do more than we can do. And so we are forced into a triage mode where we can't, we just can't do it. So this is the best step you can take at that point. So any step in this direction is a positive one. Yeah. We're trying to say, yeah, it's, it's a Pareto optimal thing. Um, you know, even just using a proto persona solves two very real problems that live inside the teams. Uh, yeah. One of which is is the classic "you are not your user" problem. Yeah. Where a uh, a super technical operations research AI programming software developer full stack rock star guy with deep understanding of the domain and the technology will build a user interface for themselves that is hyper-optimized for efficiency for someone who knows everything already and knows how it works. Okay. If they okay. are their own customer, that's great. Yeah. Um, but they're not. They're almost never. They almost never are. Right. So just having a proto-persona saying, yep, it's not for you, is enough well, to avoid that problem. And I always describe it as like you're trying to create this personal connection between the developer who's solving the problem and the person who has the problem so that they can see, you know, maybe there's somebody they know who is in some way similar. They can kind of have an emotional connection, a stronger emotional connection. So it's not just like the user from Tron. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, and and that made a ton of sense the way, the way you shared it in the CSPL class too. Um, the way... I think about it is that you're developing empathy and, uh, and there's also a term called cognitive empathy, which I don't actually know where it came from, but I first heard it from Indy Young, uh, in her book, mental models, which is awesome when you're framing all this stuff up. Okay. Um, it's about understanding what the goals are of your user. What problems are they trying to solve? Why are they trying to solve them? What does it mean for, to them to solve them? Yeah. So okay. just capturing that little bit of info in the proto persona solves this first of two anti-patterns of you are not your user. Yeah. The second one, which you see all the time at scale, this is about shared understanding of the context in which you're working. So if I've got multiple teams, let's say I'm, I'm building an e-commerce website, I've got a team focused on search, I've got a team building product pages, a team doing the shopping cart, a team doing the checkout flow, right? So each team is focusing on each of those sort of product areas, and they've got a multi-year roadmap and a lot of focus and stuff. What if each of those teams designs their part of the product for a different user? Okay then you end up with an end-to-end experience that isn't good for anyone. Yeah. And so just I just you want that you it, want them all on the same page. You you want yeah, right. And so that that anti pattern uh I has always well, has been known for since uh I don't know 15 or 20 years ago when I learned it as the elastic user problem and I think it yeah. was Kathy Sierra who might have exposed me to that. Um, okay. Another awesome That's good. Author. That was one of the questions I was going to ask you. Good. I can check that one off. Sweet. Okay. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so you want to provide the context across your teams 
within which you're orchestrating all your work so that they are all solving for the same user because that hypothesis of value was built on make it better for a group of people. Yeah. Okay. So let's assume that they've got the proto persona, they've got the empathy map. Um, what are ways that you consider to be effective in terms of collecting the actual data that you need to validate or disprove different assumptions you've made along the way? Yep. Okay. So the huge caveat is that's the question that starts that that steps me out of uh, my credibility zone. Okay. Uh, I've they don't know that. I've I've that's okay. They should know it now, <laughs> right? I've very graciously been anointed the honorary UX title at a previous employer um, because I care about this stuff and I focus on it. But my expertise is not in what's the best kind of research. Uh, I, I know that I have seen results. But hold on. Let me just let me pause you for a second because it's awesome that you're saying that. But for myself and the people that are listening to this podcast, dude, you're the expert. So just go with it. Okay. Uh, there's more for me yet to learn than I've learned so far. Here's okay. some things I've learned already. Uh, there's there's two, two sort of frame – there's two different ways of framing the kinds of research that are valuable. Uh, the, the one most people outside of the UX world are familiar with is qualitative versus quantitative. Okay. And so an example in the quantitative space would be I'm going to do some A-B testing and I'm going to instrument my product or my lean startup experiment and see what resonates with different people. And I can say 60% of people liked it this way versus yeah. 40% liked it that way. So let's go build it for real this way. Right. Okay. So that's quantitative research. Uh, qualitative research would be like, so I, I think I mentioned a ride along yeah, or a contextual inquiry. Uh, I, I had a client uh, that I was fortunate enough to work with for about 18 months where uh, every week I spent at least one session hanging out in the call center uh, doing ride alongs, listening to customer support calls so that I could get a deep understanding, develop it initially when I needed it and keep it current as, on an ongoing basis around the problems that the customers of my client had. Yeah. Right. So that qualitative, like I am not, I'm not in the, in that situation. I'm not even asking questions. I am, sure. I am just absorbing just whatever. Observing. And yeah. only some percentage of that would, uh, would be particularly relevant to the problem at hand, but I would capture all those notes so that I could over time build some mental models, call back out yep. to Indy Young again. And and develop cognitive empathy for the problems they care about solving. Okay. Uh, right. So that's my product management focus. The user experience expert is going to listen for different things. Okay. And in that user experience world, the other framing of these different kinds of research is generative and evaluative. So generative okay. research is I want to go figure out stuff about my market so that I know what to go build. And so like what kind I know, of stuff? Uh so it it could be exploring somebody exploring a space of let's let's say you talked to uh travelers in an airport and you just interviewed them and said hey you're in the middle of traveling right now what's the thing that brought you the most joy or what's the thing that's the biggest pain in the butt and okay. you're, you're going to get different answers from families traveling with kids trying to figure out how do i feed them or keep keep them occupied during a 3 hour connection 
or yeah. uh, with a business traveler, you're going to deal with the frustration of, I can't believe the TSA line is so long because I needed to step outside uh, during my connection and I've only got 40 minutes. Two minutes left, yeah. <laughs> uh, right, so you're, go- you're going to develop an understanding of customers uh, that's exploratory. Okay. And, and so you are generative. It's called generative. You're generating insights about your customers. Got it. Evaluative research is the distinction of saying, I want your feedback on this thing that I've built, right? That's where most of the like lean startup attention is when you, when you talk to a scrum team and you think about doing your demo at the end of your sprint, uh, you know, you're not, you don't just demo for your product owner. You want to get feedback from your customers. That's where all your evaluative research lands. Does okay. this approach to solving the problem we picked work for you? Okay. And, um, you know, one of the little sneaky things is you can actually go do evaluative feedback before you have a product, before you even have a prototype. You've got competitors. Go yeah. go get feedback on how the competitor product works and doesn't work, what resonates and doesn't resonate. And okay. you, you are going to rapidly accelerate how quickly you get to a valuable product. You know, like okay. that's – you know, you talk about fast followers, people wave their hands at it of, you know, you've got somebody who's carving out a path in the market, you know, Microsoft 20 years ago, introducing tablets kind of didn't yeah. work. Um, Apple was, no, able to go do some, Apple was able to go do some <laughs> research and understand. Develop the Newton. Yeah. Right. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. And, and understand what it was that didn't work okay. so that when they entered the market, you know, they didn't just magically stumble upon something that worked. They were able to do evaluative research based on what caused the previous failures to fail. Yeah. Okay. So I collect all this data, and now what do I do with it? Yeah, okay. So you're, you're going to do two or three things with it. One of them is you're going to create an overview that says this is the scope of our product thinking. It's a lightweight um, – shallow level of insight that says these are all the users that we're thinking about. Okay. And that gives you, that gives you framing for lots of conversations. What do I do now? What do I do next? What do I do never? Right. Who are, which users matter the most, right? Right. It, it, it opens the door to lots of those conversations about which, which ones are important ever and which ones are important right now. Um, Right. So your proto personas are super useful for that. The decisions about yeah. what to do and shared understanding throughout the team of who they are. Okay. This, the second thing that you're going to use it for is to, uh, to de-risk the plan that you've chosen. So if you think about an epic and the features you're building and the stories that you're writing, that is designed to improve something for a group of users. You now have the ability to carry that insight of that group of users into your system of delivery and across all the teams that might be working on it so that they have a focus and aren't, um, aren't making bad choices about how to solve for them okay. or, or inconsistent choices. Even if they're good choices, you want them all choosing the same way. You want them all solving the same problem when they're teaming up to solve the same problem. Yeah. And, okay. And then – use is within any given team, uh, you are identifying multiple ways to potentially solve the problems you've picked, right? If you only come up with one design and do one story pointing exercise and then you, a little scary. and then you go do it, right? There's, there's a meme on the internet that says, uh, 
I think it's a picture of Ned Flanders from The Simpson who says, we've tried nothing and we're all out of ideas. Yeah. Right. That's <laughs> that's what it feels like to me uh, when yeah. when you do a story pointing exercise and all you come up with is one approach to solving the problem and you estimate it and then you try and prioritize your backlog based on that. Right. Yeah. That's like weak sauce to me. Uh, OK. You, you've 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 put no effort into exploring all the different ways you might solve it. So this empathy map is helping you in that third that third step of saying, let me inform my exploration, my uh, divergent design process so that I am creating ideas that are more likely to be valid from which yeah. I will then pick. Okay. Okay. So that's it in a nutshell, right? And all, all right. of that stuff de-risks the plan. Uh, it improves predictability of timing and predictability of value realization. So – so one, I want to encourage everybody to read your article, which I'll make sure to include a link to. But Thanks. I want to ask, it seems to me like it would be worth taking the time to do a separate podcast about how to create a proto-persona, how to create an empathy map, and how to create the actual, or how to, how to take that, what, whatever you've got after the empathy map, and get to a state where you've got the actual real persona information. Um, would you be willing to, to set, we can set up time in the future to do Follow up podcast on this topic, um, kind yeah. of the same way the cost of delay thing worked. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, getting it, yes. Okay, cool. Good answer. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, thank you all for listening. So, I'm make sure to check out the article, and I'll try to include examples of each thing. But keep checking back because we're going to do follow up conversations on this topic. Scott, if people want to get in touch with you in the meantime, what's the best way for them to reach you? Uh, I, probably the easiest starting point is to just follow me on Twitter and then you can reach out to me directly and, and we'll go from there. And All right, tell uh, them what your Twitter my, is. My Twitter handle is Selhorst, which okay. is only tricky because there's two H's with an L in the middle. It's S is in Sam, E-H-L-H-O-R-S-T. Okay. And I'll make sure to include a link to that. And, and I'm assuming like LinkedIn and the leading agile site, obviously those are both Okay, ways to reach you as well. Oh yeah, I, yeah. The the leading agile site I think is is designed to let you know who I am. I don't know if it's actually set up to make it easy to contact me. Well, they have buttons that sometimes work. Oh, do they? So, okay, sweet. Sometimes I, I haven't tried. But I'll put them. the links in the show notes for the podcast. Sorry, Tim. He's going to be upset that I said that. Um, but yeah, I'll make sure to include links to that so people should reach out to you if they have questions in the meantime. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Love All right, dude. Thank you, you very much for doing this. No, this no, was no fun. my pleasure. This is great.